I'm John and I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. Hi, group. It's good to be asked to lead a meeting, not only speak at a convention, but lead any meeting. And the reason why I say that, because I know that I'm clean and sober today, and for that I'm grateful. And I'm grateful to CDA, and I'm grateful to you people that I'm here. And everybody asks you, are you nervous? And of course, I said no, and I'm not really nervous, but you, as soon as you get up here and they start introducing you, get a little queasy. But uh, J.W. kind of broke the ice. And he said, I can see the paper tomorrow. Jailhouse John in Las Vegas speaking at the Sands. <laughs> And uh, I kind of got a little laugh. And uh, it's really good to be here, though. It really is at the convention. And uh, I want to read something first before I start. And uh, I'm going to do something a little different. It's a while. You know, you hear the drugologues, and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. But I'm not going to go into more than 15 minutes in, the, in the, what it used to be like because... When a person has been sober seven, almost 17 years, 16 and a half years, they, they should have a recovery story. And uh, so I'm going to share that with you mostly. And uh, But I want to read this first. And this is real special. Here at CDA, we had a scholarship that Perry put on to get people to come to the convention that didn't have the money or the means. And, and uh, he did some special events to, to get some money uh, for this so they could have it. And we got a letter here. And uh, it says, the staff and consumers wish to thank you for the kindness in extending the offer of scholarships for us. We are happy to have the opportunity to participate in this event. As without your kindness, most of the consumers would not be able to experience this opportunity. Again, thank you for your kind considerations. Sincerely, Norma L. Knowles, Northgate Program Coordinator. And that's great. So welcome. When you think about it, that's what it's all about, is giving it away. That's what it's all about. And I welcome everybody that's, uh, that's here for the first time at the convention. I welcome everybody that's new, especially the one that got the big books. And uh, you have no excuse now. All the information is right in there. And, uh, and that's really neat. And it's a, really a good turnout. And, you know, it's funny. I look out there, and I, I know probably 80 to 85 to 90% of you. And that's, that's pretty overwhelming when you think of that. That's overwhelming. When I first came in here, I didn't know hardly anybody. And uh, I didn't uh, know what to do. I was lost. And uh, for that, I'm grateful that I got a chance to, to know you people and you got a chance to know me. And uh, I enjoyed the speakers Friday night. You know, Eileen and Tom, and uh, I enjoyed... Uh, uh, I tell you, uh, today was, was great. You know, uh, with my, one of my buddies that I sponsor spoke, and his wife, and Jay and Michelle, and I did a wonderful job. And uh, that, that's really neat, you know. And uh, this program has offered me so much, so much. But I tell you, uh, my story, as you all know, is in the big book of Chemical Dependent Anonymous. And uh, when I did that story, uh, the hardest thing I had to do was, what was going to be the title? Didn't know what to do about it. And I always thought that I was no good, I was worthless, I never amounted to nothing. I was nothing but a, a con artist, a crook, a thief, anything you want, it didn't matter. And uh, I remember when I came in here that uh, uh, I've heard that before, that you know God doesn't make junk, and I wasn't a piece of junk. 
And I said, that's the name of my story. God doesn't make junk. And I believe that today, that He doesn't make junk. And uh, I thank God for that. I thank God for you people, like I said. And uh, I tell you, uh, I grew up in a family, and, uh, and I was the youngest. I have a sister about 17 years older than I am. And uh, this August, three years from this August, I will be 60. And that's kind of hard for me to comprehend. But there's a few of you in this room are right there with me, so don't be... And I know who you are. I'll point you out. Our birthdays are real close. And uh, that's overwhelming when you think about it. Overwhelming. But I remember taking that first drink. I was about four years old. And my parents, they were, I came home, came from an alcoholic family. And my father always said, get me a beer. And I drank the beer. And... and uh, uh, he would say, open it, and he'd give me a sip, and when he had a little left, I would take it, you know, and I remember stealing it when I was about seven, and the first time I remember getting drunk, I was about seven years old, and uh, I started drinking that, and uh, throwing up, getting sick, and uh, I tell you, uh, from that point on, uh, I had the disease of addiction, I really believe that, and at 18 years old, I went to prison for the first time unauthorized use of a motor vehicle and did a year in that and uh, the bad part about it is I didn't even steal the car I didn't even know the car was really stolen a friend of mine got it and I was thinking it was his it was okay and I was going somewhere of course I don't I don't have to be honest with you I was going somewhere to break in a place with this car that I didn't know that was stolen <laughs> and uh, uh, I got caught and uh, they took me to a high school precinct and uh, at 12 o'clock at night and uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning, I went in front of a judge. And at that time, I don't know what it was. I was 18 years old, and I don't know if you made a phone call or what, but they said, you're going to court in the morning. I said, well, I'll be, I'll be found not guilty. I didn't do nothing. They just caught me in the car. He said, the car was stolen. Well, I didn't know. So the judge said, you want to be tried now? By, tried by you know another court, or how do you want to do it? And I said, I want to be tried right now. I didn't do nothing. And I says, uh, of course, nowadays you couldn't do that. And uh, he said, how do you plead? I said, not guilty. And of course, the police officer gave him. I was riding the road. He pulled me over. The car was stolen, such and such. And the judge looked down. He said, the court finds you guilty. And I've sentenced you to one year in the Maryland House of Correction. Never been in trouble in my life until that point. And at 12 noon, I was eating lunch in Jessup. Parents didn't know where I was. It took them two weeks before they found and got a letter from me. And uh, they were heartbroken. And I'll tell you what, that was the time that uh, my life started of the day of crime. And from that point on, I didn't do nothing but uh, do anything to get money. And I remember my soul partner was a safe cracker. And it fascinated how he could open these safes. And uh, so I went out and started doing that. Started breaking in places. In fact, uh, uh, me and a couple guys that uh, used to come to Atlantic City before it even had the gambling. And we used to knock off probably every gas station there was on the way to Atlantic City on Route 40 to get money to come down here to drink in the bars. And I remember doing all that kind of insane stuff. And one of the worst things that happened to me, of course, I got busted in 1967 for, for a burglary, and, in 19, uh, and I got three years for it, and I went to Hagerstown. And in 1972, uh, I had a shootout with the Prince George's County Police on Kenilworth Avenue. And I just got through breaking in the house, and I was drunk. 
And it was a bookmaker's house, and I remember that. And uh, this guy owed me some money on a bet, never paid, and he said I owed it. And, I, and he usually keeps a line where he says, well, I know what you bet, I know what you did, I got it on tape. And, and the bottom line was that I thought I won, and I was mad at him. I said, I'm going to break in, break in his house and steal all his money. So I ended up breaking in his house, thought it was his house. <laughs> I was drunk, and I looked out there, and there was a man pulled up in a telephone truck. I said, what the hell? That man ain't no telephone. He's a bookmaker. He ain't no damn telephone man. And it was, I was in the wrong house. I was in the house next door. So I run out the back, and he heard the door shut and run out after me, and he pulled up alongside a little pickup parked a couple blocks away, and I got in that truck and rode down Kenilworth Avenue, and they must have radioed, and he must I don't know, he pulled over, went to a payphone, and called the police and said I was on my way down Kenilworth Avenue, I mean down uh, Riverdale Road, and right there in the McDonald's there, uh, there was police, I guess they were eating lunch or something, and they were coming out of there, and they had me surrounded, there was, must have been 10 or 15 cop cars right there, Kenilworth Avenue, Riverdale Road, probably the busiest intersection in the world. <laughs> And they stopped. I had a 22 pistol on me. I said, I'll get them. <laughs> I pulled the gun out to shoot them. And it went off and I shot myself in the leg. <laughs> I fell out of the truck and said, y'all shot me. <laughs> and they didn't fire a shot. They took me to PG Hospital. And they removed the little slug which was a 22. We all know that police don't carry no 22s. <laughs> and make matters worse, I shot me in the leg and it come right out the back of my butt almost. I didn't quite get out and my ass was burning. <laughs> so the doctor was, I said, man, get that thing out of there. <laughs> so he finally got it out and he took me to jail, took me up a Marlboro, I went in front of the judge and he put me out on some crazy bond, a hundred, $200,000 bond because I had a gun. I don't know what it was. I couldn't even think about getting out on bond. And uh, I stayed there about a year. It was about 11 months actually. And I went in front of the judge there and uh, he said, how do you plead? I had a lawyer, you know, public defender. and..." I denied this. This guy just chased me, got me mixed up with someone else and the whole deal. And make a long story short, I had a jury trial. It lasted a couple of days. I was trying to finagle when I told him it was someone else. And they end up uh, finding me guilty. And he says, uh, you got anything before I pass sentence on you? And I says, you know, I said, yeah. I said, I want you to be as lenient as possible on me. And I said, I'm married. I got a couple of kids. And, you know, I, and he said, do you have anything else to say? And I said, yeah, I got one other thing to say. I think the jury made a wrong decision in this case. Well, he didn't like that idea. He didn't really like it. And he said, well, I have nothing to do. That's the jury's decision. And they found you guilty. And he almost chewed me out like he would have found me guilty too. And he says, I, I sentenced you to 10 years in the Maryland House of Correction. In fact, at that time, it was the Department of Correction. I went to the Maryland Penitentiary. And I was on diagnostic there. And uh, that was a tough road. And uh, I stayed there for a while. I did about seven and a half years on that ten. And when I got out, I said, I know what I got to do. I got to move out of the area. I got to move to Frederick County. There's nothing up there but farms and cows, and you can't get no trouble up there. <laughs> when my addiction took me up there, within a year, I had about 17 burglary charges on me. I done broke in every place in Frederick County. <laughs> and uh, the judge says, how do you plead? I said, not guilty. <laughs> He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. 
And before what happens, I worked a deal with him because I, you know, he said, if you plead guilty and, and all that stuff, and then we worked it out, it's a plea bargain deal. He said, I'll give you three years in the Frederick County Jail. And I agreed to that because I thought he was going to give me 10 or 15 years to send me back down through the state system. But I, 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 it was a neat little old jail, old country jail. I said, hell, I can get out of that thing. <laughs> so what happened was he gave me three years. And I did three years, day for day, in that county jail. That was one of the worst times. That was worse than that seven years, seven and a half years I ever did in that county jail. And when I got out of there, I moved back to the Silver Spring area. And, you know, my life just got, uh, it got worse and worse. And I started shooting dope and doing all the crazy things I had to do and, and, and all that. And uh, it never got any better. That was my whole life. And I got busted again. I did a couple years. And uh, uh, I remember one time I was in Jessup. And my... Uh, Mother would never come visit me inside the institution. She said it just breaks her heart. See her little John in jail. Little John John, she called me. I was about, I looked like, I was acting like Charles Manson out there. She called me Little John John. <laughs> and she says, uh, uh, I come to visit you. She wrote me a letter. I'm going to be up in Mother's Day and I, I really want to see you. And I said, good, I'll be glad to see you. Well, a couple of days before that, me and my cell party was making wine. And they called it a jump steady. Anybody who's been to jail know what a jump steady is. And we started uh, making this wine, and we put too much yeast in it. We were about 3 o'clock in the morning. I heard the cell doors open up. The wine then exploded and run out on the tier. The guards come in running in there. There ain't but two of us in the cell. He said, whose wine is it? I said, ain't mine. <laughs> and my cell partner said it wasn't his, and they put us on lockup. And I got 90 days on lockup. And I remember that weekend, my mother come to visit me on Mother's Day. And they wouldn't let her in because I couldn't get no visits. And she wrote me a letter, and I'll never forget that letter to this day. She said, Dear John, she said, You can't even be good in jail. <laughs> How true that was. How true that was. See, the problem was that, and she didn't know nothing about addiction, nothing. And, uh, and and uh, I got in more trouble. It got worse. I remember coming back to my cell and I caught this guy breaking in my locker. 29 cent bag of cookies. And, and uh, my cell was right near the end. It was about number 38 at that time. And it was about 45 cells, I think, on that tier. And he got up real front as soon as the doors opened. He knew I was in back, coming back from the chow hall. And he went and got in. I saw him open, they open the doors all together. And I got down there and he was breaking in my cell. And he was... I mean, he was in my locker, breaking in my locker with a 29-cent bag of cookies, and we started tussling in there. And I always kept a tobacco can, a bugler tobacco can, sharpened underneath uh, my bunk. And he hit me. He had some kind of rod, and he hit me, and he knocked me down. He really stunned me. And when he fell down, I fell down right at the end of the bed. And I remember that for some reason, my hand reached underneath that mattress. It just fell at the right place. I knew I had it there, and I found that bugler tobacco can. And I started cutting on him. And it was like a razor. I cut him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And I remember the guards came in and pulled me off of him. Threw me down in isolation. The next day they come up, I had a hearing. They said I was definitely uh, in a lot of trouble. And the next day, it was two days that went by, they came to come out. You got to come out of here, step out here. They made me step out, put my hands behind my back, they handcuffed me, put shackles around my waist, shackled my feet, said, you're going somewhere. 
I didn't know where I was going. They put me in a car and they took me a couple miles away. They took me to a place called Clifton T. Perkins for the criminally insane. And I stayed there about four months. And they didn't know how to control me. And I was in a place with some nuts. Let me tell you, these people were out there. I don't belong there. But they must have thought of me because I was acting out and someone was doing something crazy and uh, wanted to urinate on my feet. I said, you ain't urinate on my feet. And I started, I got in a couple of scuffles in there and they said, well, you, you know, we need to do something. So they put me on Thorazine. Liquid Thorazine. used to go in there and drink nasty stuff. And my big event of the day was going down the chapel. They would lock the rooms. You couldn't get down there. You couldn't get in your rooms. You had to go out in the hall. And the only thing you could do was play ping pong cards. And play cards and ping pong. That's all you could do. And sleep. You slept all the time because the Thorazine knocked you down. I'd be laid up in the car. I'd find a quarter, corner somewhere where another nut wasn't. And I'd put myself down there. And I'd go to sleep. And then some nut would kick me. It's my turn in that corner. And I'd get up. And then I heard someone say, Chow time. And I'd get up and I'd go down to the chow hall. And it would take me at least two days to get there. I remember that walk to that chow hall. People say, hurry up and eat, hurry up and eat. You know? We gotta go back. Ten minutes later, I'm doing this. Of course, back in my corner. But you know what the best event of the day was? Around three o'clock in the afternoon. They give you another cup of Thorazine and they open the day rooms up. They open the rooms up where your bed was and tell you to go in your bed. Thank God for that bed. I was back in that, going to bed. That went on for four months. Four months. When I think about that today, I can laugh about it. But man, I was screwed up. They had me messed up. They had me hired. I was in some kind, I don't know, I smoked PCP, but I ain't never been like that. <laughs> Slobbering all down my mouth, you know, just shit dripping. Thank God that experience, and they came in after about four months. I went to the psychiatrist, and they, of course, they asked me all kind of questions. You know, like, Perry, we talked about the inner child. And I didn't even want to talk about the inner child. I didn't want to talk about no child. I want to get out of here. And they said, well, you got a serious problem. And damn, i got a serious problem. These nuts got, these people give me this medicine got a serious problem. I used to, you know... The bottom line was that uh, I went back to Jessup and uh, they put some charges on me, attempt murder, on the guy that I cut. And this was four months I was there. When I went back, he was still in the, in the sick bay hospital there. He must have had 10,000 stitches in it. He said, I, and he, only, he had nerve enough, they put me on lockup and I went past him. He said, I'm going to get you. I said, how the going to get me? You be lucky next time, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and you know what? I never saw him after that because they transferred him out and uh, they sent him to the Maryland Penitentiary. And uh, I never did see him anymore after that. 
And what happened was that I went to court and uh, I worked a deal with him where they gave me a couple years and he ran it with the time that I was doing. And uh, so that was that was great, you know. That that was that was wonderful. And uh, I had no, uh, uh, I didn't have to do any more extra time. So for that, I'm real grateful. You know, I'm real grateful that I didn't. Uh, and I tell you what, in 1985, after all the craziness of incarceration, of course I was married with three kids in and out of prison and and all that. Uh, I ended up uh, going to. Uh, 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 jail again up in Frederick County it was for my third DWI and they asked me they asked me uh, the judge says you know you need to be in some kind of treatment center you got the worst criminal record I've ever seen you definitely got a problem with drugs and alcohol and how would you like to go into a treatment center I said I would well he gave me a year in jail for the third DWI and gave me a $500 fine and and uh, he said, we're going to see if we can't get some kind of program for you. Well, that woman came over from the Frederick County Health Department and uh, they interviewed me and said, you definitely got a substance abuse problem and uh, you'd like to go in treatment. And at that time, I'm going to be honest with you, I said, sure, I would love to go in. And uh, uh, really, I wasn't thinking about going in. I just want to get out of that jail, to be honest with you. But I just want to get out. And what happened was that... Uh, they sent me to a place called the Massey Unit in Cumberland, Maryland. And I went up there and uh, uh, I realized that uh, I knew I was an alcoholic drug addict 20 years before I got here. I didn't have a problem with that. The problem that I had, I didn't want to do nothing about it. I didn't like getting straight. Who the hell wanted to be straight? I like getting high. I like what it did. And uh, for the first time, uh, they took me to meetings outside and, and one of the meetings was called uh, it was an AA meeting my first meeting since I got out of incarceration was a CDA meeting actually but my first meeting inside, uh, inside there when I was in the treatment was an AA meeting up in Cumberland and it was called the Smokehouse and the reason why they, it was an old teeny church in Cumberland and the reason why they called it the Smokehouse because everybody in there had a cigarette and they were all smoking and you couldn't see the speaker <laughs> so much smoke in the room and I remember Guys were picking up chips and all that, and, and you know, 30 days and 60 days, and I thought they were lying. You know, I thought that how are you going to stay straight for 30 days and 60 days? And then I heard one guy. I never forget this as long as I live. There's one guy. It looked like he had a piece of chewing tobacco in the side of his lip there and his uh, cheek. He said, "My name is Henry, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic, and I'm one drink away from being drunk." I thought, damn, well, Henry, you can't drink too much. <laughs> How in the hell could it be one drink away and being drunk? <laughs> Didn't have a clue. But you know today I'm one drink away and being drunk. I know that today. I learned that from Henry. I haven't seen Henry. I don't know where Henry is, but I know one thing. I learned that from Henry. And I, I tell you what, when I got out of there, I went back to jail and I did a couple more months and they gave me time served. And uh, uh, I had an opportunity when I got out of there. They ordered me to go to the health department and counseling and therapy and meetings and everything else. And the first meeting I ever went to was a Wednesday night meeting. It was a CDA meeting over in Belts. I mean, over in uh, uh, off of Colesville Road in Silver Spring. And it was about five or six people there at that meeting. And uh, four or five of them are in this room right now. 
and everybody was at that meeting when I went are still clean and sober today. And there's one person hidden with us today, and that was Fonzie the dog who died. That was Mark Cruz's dog. Everyone else is in this room, and I never forgot that. Then they told me about a meeting over in Greenbelt. And uh, that was over in uh, St. Hugh's Church. And I went over there and I saw this guy. He looked like the salesman and uh, the model. And who the hell is this guy? He looked familiar. He looked familiar. He said, my name is Ron. I didn't ask him what his name was. He said, I know you. You don't know me. How do you know me? I've been in jail all my life. He said, I remember you. And what it was, he, he played sports on one team and I played on another team. And later on, he always said that uh, I was always scared of you. And uh, he said, you were crazy. You all had a heck of a good team, good football team. And, my, and I always played sports. And I love football. I love to hit people. <laughs> you can hit people and get away with it. I love football. And I love baseball. In fact, how, that's how I probably you know, survived in those institutions. I was always the, the good athlete and always could play ball and always could play football and, and all that. And I survived in there because of that. I, I believe that. And, uh, uh, and they always, the guys would choose up. And of course, at that time, I don't know what it is now, it was probably 85%, 80 to 85% black in those institutions where I was in there. And all them guys, I'd take that white boy there. And I'd be on the team. Of course, they'd knock me next to the last, but that was all right. But uh, uh, I had an opportunity to survive in those institutions because I could play sports fairly well. And uh, thank God when I came to CDA. And, uh, of course, I asked Ronnie to be my sponsor. And uh, he graciously said yes. And uh, we've had a relationship for the past 16 and a half years because of it. And uh, I had an opportunity in this fellowship uh, to kind of get involved, especially early on. And it was kind of exciting. And the reason why it was exciting is CDA was only about five years old. You know, and it's another thing that's real fun. My birthday is August 17th. And you know when CDA started? August 17th, 1980. And I remember the, one couple of years there, August 17th, fell so on the day they had the annual picnic. There's 150 people that I think are there for my birthday. <laughs> they're there for my birthday. And uh, that's neat. Didn't, I did not know all those years, you know, that uh, August 17th was the day the CDA was born. And I, was, and I used to study the book a lot and read it. And it's a fantastic book. We always hear about the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous, which is a wonderful book. But CDA is not a bad book either, because it really makes sense when you think about it. When it started on August 17, 1980, in Rick and Ellen's house, there was 12 people at that meeting. And I think 12 people were the 12 steps. And the next meeting after that was in Annapolis. I think it was the St. Anne's. And I remember, I've been to St. Anne's. I think it was on Duke of Colostrophy Street in, in downtown Annapolis. And I've been to that meeting. So I can say that I've been to the second CDA meeting ever. And that's wonderful when you can say this part of history. But what's more exciting than that is that uh, when I came in and it was a few years, I, did, I had 18 months at that time. 
and they were getting ready to Willie, and they were all voting on it. They were getting ready to put out a big book, Chemical Dependent Anonymous. Someone asked me, uh, would you be willing to, uh, to share your story? And, of course, I did. And uh, uh, my story got uh, put in the big book, and uh, that's when I had a problem, didn't know what to name it, and, of course, it came up, God doesn't make junk. Even though I thought I was a worthless person and I was bad and I was no count and God created me bad, he created some people good, and he happened to be the one to create me bad. I really believe that. That's how, that's how you know, this disease does to us. And I didn't have a relationship with God, didn't know anything about God until I got in here. And I heard about God, and, uh, and I went to some good schools, too. I went to some Catholic schools that were good schools. And I had some nuns that really tried to do the right thing with me, you know, really try to help me along and tutor me and spend extra time. And I just wanted to do it my way. And that my way, of course, took me to the penitentiaries and all that. And uh, so I had an opportunity to be a part of that CDA big book. And that meant a lot to me. You know, and not only that, uh, after that I thought about it because we were having softball and I got to play on a softball team with Mike. Mike S. was the coach and, and of course we won the championship, I think it was about 1987. That was really a neat thing. That was really neat. And uh, before we did that, uh, I wrote something. I didn't know because I could hardly, I didn't learn how to spell it until I was about 18 years old or even read until I was about 18. The only thing I read was the crime section. And the reason why I read the crime section is because I read the metro section. I wanted to know where all the dope was, where they're dying at, so I could go down and get it. So I learned how to read through that and also read in sports. That's the only thing. Because I sure, I don't know how they got me through nine or ten years of school. And, uh, uh, I remember writing stories, and one of the best things, you know, uh, we talked about the big book, was, uh, uh, and I was having so much fun playing ball, and we, there's a chapter in there, it's having fun and recovery. And that means more to me than my story in there. Because that tells the new people that we can have fun and recovery. That is one of the greatest things that I think has happened to me since I've been clean and sober, is having fun and recovery. And there's a million stories in there. And, and I'm going to read a couple of the stories, not in depth, just a couple of little things about fun and recovery and some of the names you'll remember. And some of them are here tonight. Big Al hits another one over the fence. <laughs> Coach Mike S. jumps for joy when Tim makes another double play look easy. John throws another pitch. Not as good as Jamie, but good. <laughs> Marlene cheers the CDA Fun Bunch to the 1987 Softball Championship. <laughs> Volleyball. Willie sends the ball Ron R's way for the slam. Brent taps it over the net for the point. Perry spikes another one. The CDA Volleyball teams wins it all. Gratitude breakfast. Brent's speaks from his heart while Candy and Heidi and Marie listen to finish their coffee. Sterling smiles and laughs at the speakers as they share their experience, strength, and hope with each other. Whitewater Afton, Kevin and Gwen, and Big Rob share their experience at the campfire meeting. Denny, was at the annual picnic, enjoys the ride home on his big motor. 
New Year's dance. Bucky, Beverly, getting down on the floor. <laughs> That's fun. That's fun in recovery. And another thing about this book. This is the hardbound copy of the CDA Big Book. It's probably worth $20,000. I think I got the only one left. The rest of them gave them away. I bought five of them. Got them all. See me after the meeting, Ronnie. They cost $50 a piece at that time. Right, Willie? $50 a piece. Redskin colors. Secret, look, I had it covered and everything. This is the first time I bought it out. It ain't never been read. I just, first time it's ever been read. One of my trophies. That's wonderful. I showed a couple people from Delaware so they'd be the first to see the big CDA first book. Didn't it, Sandy? Show it to them. And you know, the stories get touching. Some of the other stories. Here's another story. There's a guy in prison, someone I had dealt drugs with. I was all excited about being straight. He was all excited. I was all excited about being straight. I sent him the acceptance pamphlet. I wrote him a letter. Man, I haven't used drugs in over 180 days. I got a new way of life, and I want to share this with you. I'm sure he was thrilled to hear my news sitting in the penitentiary while he served five years. But four years later, I got a phone call from this guy. He was once called the biggest PCP manufacturer in the United States. But this year, he'll be celebrating two years in the fellowship. And that was 15 years ago. And those two fellows are in this room right now. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Here's another story. Right after my fifth anniversary, I went to on to a CDA camp out with my girlfriend. I had decided that this might be the right time to pop the question. Two years before, I had not even considered marrying, but one night as we walked on the beach, I just looked over to her and said, I'm making this walk toward God, and I wonder if you would like to come along with me. She knew exactly what I meant, and she answered, I would. Six months ago, I had the privilege of walking her down the aisle. This was an extremely important step in my life, because I think I finally understood now what love is. Marvelous story. You think about it. Right. And I have children that uh, uh, using, and I, I have a son, the youngest son, and, and he's been doing real good. He's been doing good for a while, and uh, he's involved in a church, and he does really good. And the other two have been dabbling, and, uh, and it kind of makes you disgusted. But I've tur turned them over to God. There's nothing I can do. Nothing. Powerless over it. And one of them had five years, and the other one said she had two. I don't know about that, but she said she had two. And, uh, it just breaks your heart. 
and uh, the person I talked about who read that story had an older son about my son's age and they go through the same thing we all have that we have children and we have friends and you know and I think we really learn about powerlessness more so with other people than we do ourselves you know I've done myself I really learned about powerlessness you know because when I looked at me I didn't think I was powerless you know I just didn't want to stop you know I didn't really look at it until I came in the program and realized that I was powerless over alcohol and drugs but I was more powerless over other people and especially your own kids grown up to be a good person and not a drug addict and alcoholic because they're raised in a good Christian home makes all the difference in the world makes all the difference in the world it's not they don't go away but they got a shot and that's what we have in this program I know myself we have a shot we bring our kids up right and try to do the right thing and not take the path that we took we have a shot and uh, thank God for this program and uh, I tell you what it saved my life it saved my life and I moved down here a few years ago and me and Diane and uh, uh, I've been through some hard times in sobriety I haven't been through some easy times I've been through some hard times health wise and I went through an awful divorce uh, I didn't know how to deal with it you know I didn't know how to deal with it and uh, I don't want to say nothing bad but I, don't, I didn't know how to deal with it a lot of anger a lot of craziness went in my head and, and uh, of course that would have took me back to the penitentiary probably on death row so I did with it the only way I knew how to deal with it I got on my knees and asked God what do I do he said well you can't do what you're thinking it's the only thing he told me and the reason why because you have three children and you're talking about these kids mother and he was right he was right so I did the next best thing I moved to Delaware <laughs> After I got a divorce, and finally, was after a year, I said, oh, "I'm never getting, I'm not getting mixed up." And I was married 27 years, and I've known Diane for a long time. We got uh, married a year after my divorce was final. She's been a love of my life. She's my soulmate. We have a great relationship. Kind of crazy at times, you know what I mean? Laugh and joke and talk about the craziness of growing up and her father and. And, and my father and what they did little insane things you know and, and I remember my father used to him and my mother you know my father was a really most of my mother and father were decent people they really were even though they were drug, drug and alcoholics you know and I think my mother was dabbling with the pills a lot but they were they were decent people they did the best they could and they did show try to show love they really did they tried to do the best they could my father had a good government job and he was always teasing my mother he was corny he saw these corny jokes you know, real corny stuff at the dinner table. My mother's name was Jane, and my father's name was Ray, and my mother, my father would look over and say, Jane, and we would be eating liverwurst, which I hate today. I eat it once in a while, but I don't like it. It stinks. <laughs> he would ask my mother, how's your liver? Worse? <laughs> so what the hell is he talking about? That kind of corny stuff. We'd be eating kidney bean. How's your kidney? Bean. <laughs> And I, you know, I grew up in kind of a little craziness. And I find myself doing that with my kids today. A little crazy. I say, how's your liver worse? And you know what? Sad part of it is my liver is worse. <laughs> and 
uh, I found out after a few years in his program that uh, uh, I got hepatitis C. And uh, I tell you, I went to the doctor. He said, you can do a couple things. He said, you cannot do anything about it. He said, but it looks like it's getting pretty bad and we need to do something. So I had a liver biopsy and the whole deal and uh, they put me on interferon and uh, stayed on that and then they put me on Pegatron and I tell you what, I was sick as I've ever been in my life. Stayed on seven months. The type that I had, my genotype was a two and it don't respond to medicine any better after six months than, you know, than anything. Some people, genotype is one and they can stay, they have to stay on it a year. And uh, I was so sick, I had boils. In fact, I had marks on my arms right now where it's starting to heal. I never suffered from depression. I started getting depressed. Uh, suicidal stuff, just craziness. Very irritable, sick. I felt like I was real sick. I had the flu. I just, I've never felt that sick in my life. And I went to the doctor. I tried to call him. And Diane uh, came home one day and she said, you got to do something. You got to get out of that bed. I, I, didn't, I couldn't get out of the bed. I didn't want to go nowhere. I was sick. And I probably was close to death and didn't know it. She said, you look awful. So I, I, called, I, finally, I went to the doctor and he said, we've got to take you off this medicine. How long have you been like this? I said, great, as long as you've been giving me the medicine. He said, well, you weren't like this last month. I said, well, I started really getting sick about a month ago. He said, well, this new medicine you're on, the Pegatron, really took effect and you've got to get off that medicine. I'm stopped. Don't take any more. And I haven't been on it. And uh, the good part about it is about a week before, two weeks before I went back to the doctor, I got blood work done and showed my enzymes. It showed no signs of the virus, which is a miracle. But in the last few weeks, I've been, my resistance has kind of been down and I feel tired all the time, and which hepatitis does, it makes you tired. And I don't know if the virus has come back or not. I, I did some blood work last week and I'll know in about two weeks when I go back to the doctor again and see what my enzymes are and see what my thing is. and. Uh, I don't think I'm going to go back on the medicine. I, I can't. I mean, I was too sick. But you know what? Uh, I'm grateful today. If I died tomorrow or the next day that I had an opportunity to meet you people, to have a, fellow, a fellowship that really that is unbelievable, have a God in your life that you can relate to on a daily basis. And uh, uh, I don't want to die. Of course, I don't want to die. But I would say thing, if I know that I'm dying, the last thing I'll say is, God, thank you for letting me get clean and sober and meeting the people that I met in this room, in this fellowship and other fellowships, and giving me a wife that is my soulmate, and be able to experience three kids, no matter what their lives are like, and be able to experience grandchildren, and be able to be a grandpa to grandchildren because I was never a good father to my children. God gave me another chance. And uh, I have just I have a new grandson, David and Michael, my grand, my oldest grandson is uh, a super athlete. I said, come on, do it for Poppy. He calls me Poppy. Do it for Poppy. And I remember going to the game up there last year in Cumberland. He was playing football and he was running for a touchdown. And I'm, I'm jumping out of the stand. That's my grandson. And he's a super athlete. Really good. And I remember that. And we have a great relationship today. And I have a couple of granddaughters that God allows me to uh, just love and, and, and they're, they're good little kids. And they're my, they're my youngest son. And Jessica and uh, the little baby. And I'll tell you what. 
couldn't ask for a better script when you think about it. From where I came from to where I'm at today, it, it doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any better. And when I first come in here, I don't know if I felt wanted or what. I didn't know what to do or how to act or what to say because I didn't know anything about normalization. I didn't know. The only thing I knew was getting over. And I remember someone gave me a a nickname. I don't know who it was to this day. I said, man, you've been in jail a lot. We're going to call you Jailhouse John. I said, that's all right. And you know what? I took that name with pride. Because for the first time, I was somebody. And I remember my nephew. I tried to help out. I remember getting some heroin one time and trying to... And he said, man, can let me have a shot at that? I said, man, you don't want to do that. Don't ever do no drugs. He was young. He was my sister's boy. I said, don't ever do that. Man, I want to do that, Uncle John. And I like that. I said, you don't like it? You've never done it. Yeah, but I drank. I said, yeah, okay. I remember shooting him up for the first time. He fell in love with heroin. He became a dope fiend, just like his uncle. And that's my sister's boy. Talking about guilt fields. Seven years ago, my sister called me. She didn't know this, what happened with me and this. She knew he was drinking and drugging. She didn't know that me and him was hooked up for a while. And I was the first one who shot him up. She said, John. She was crying on the phone. She said, they found Mark in a hotel last night with a needle in his arm. Overdose. He's dead. How sad. But you know what the good part about that story is? Before that happened, I took him to a couple meetings. I took him to the Greenbelt Step Club. And he knew, you know, and I took him to one time at the AA meeting at College Park. It was a speaker's meeting. And I was telling him, I said, you know, he knew I'd been around the program a while. And I said, you know, they give me a nickname. They call me Jailhouse. He said, how do you stop being, you're always in, I looked up to you. You were always crazy. I looked up to you. You were always in jail. I got a crazy uncle in jail. I said, you know, they gave me a nickname of Jailhouse John. And I took him to his first meeting, AA meeting. And I'll never forget this as long as this day. And Jack Davis was up at the podium. And he knew me. I said, yeah, they call me Jailhouse John. And we got there about five minutes before the meeting started. And he saw me come in. And my uncle, I mean, my nephew was with me, Mark. And Jack looked out and said, I guess we can get ready to start the meeting. Jailhouse John's here. And my uncle was embarrassed. I mean, my nephew was embarrassed. He said, they're talking about you. He said, you just told me that story. I said, yeah. But see, I wasn't embarrassed. No. And then I took him to the step club. And we got out in the car and I got a chance to really share with him. And he said, you know what, Uncle Johnny? He said, I know you did a lot of drugs and I always looked up to you because you were a gangster and I had a crazy uncle and you were always in institutions and you were real crazy and the whole family was, you know, they knew that you were crazy. And I looked up to you, I want to be just like you. He said, well, you know what? I like you better now. I really felt good that. And he saw the difference that I wasn't the same person even though he ended up overdosing and dying. He knew the difference. And thank God that he saw that difference in me. And that kind of relieves me of the guilt of the first time I shot him up with heroin. And today, of course, me and my sister, we have a great relationship. Seven years later, she's still brokenhearted. Imagine losing a son. And I've had some tragedy in my life uh, since I've been in recovery. I sponsored two people. And both of them overdosed and died. 
And Perry gave me the guy's name one time. He said, this guy's just getting out of jail, and I think you can relate to him. And His name was Steve. And, of course, uh, he lived with me for a while, and he ended up dying, overdosed, dead. He'd go through the guilt thing. I had another guy live with me named Ron R. And Ronnie was... Uh, he was just like the rest of us. He manipulated the system in and out, in and out of trouble, and always, you know, always a taker, not a giver. And I remember I called. I found a syringe in my house when I lived in Laurel, Maryland. I said, Ronnie, you can't stay here, man. you got to get out of here. And I kicked him out. He said, well, can I come get my stuff in a couple of days? I said, I don't care. Call me and I'll meet you out and bring it wherever. So he called me a couple of days later and said he was in a shelter out in Montgomery County. And I went out there took him a box of stuff. And I remember he said, can you bring me that CDA book? I said, sure, I'll bring it to you. But you got to read it. He said, I know, man. I, I know. I know I messed up. And uh, I got a call from that shelter. We found him sitting on the toilet with a needle in his arm, overdose, dead. When they talk about diseases, cunning, baffling, powerful, they're not kidding. So when I moved down here, I... I Met this guy named J.P. And Jay was a good guy. And the reason why we kind of hooked up because he was from Hyattsville, Maryland. And I, I had a doctor's appointment back there in Greenbelt a few years ago, a couple years ago. And uh, I said, why don't you ride down there with me? And I rode by his old house. He showed me he lived on Gallatin Street. And he showed me that's where I used to live. My grandmother lived there and he lived there. And he was really excited about that. He was early in recovery. And uh, it wasn't but probably about seven, eight months ago that uh, Lori came up at a meeting and said that they, they found Jay in his apartment. He was dead. And you know, you go through all kind of guilt trips. What, what did I could have done? I said, well, of course, he had congested heart failure and he died, he died clean and sober. So that's a good one. See, that's a good story. Even though he died, we had a great relationship. But uh, that's what this program offers: relationships that are good, and it don't offer that everything's going to be okay once you get clean and sober. We're going to go through rough times, but we don't have to use over it. That's the deal. I don't have to use over it. I don't have to use when I went through that awful divorce. I don't have to use with my kids. I don't have to use when I do all that stuff. You know, it's because of you people and the God of my understanding that I have a relationship today. Not only with myself, but with you people and with God today. So I'm so grateful to God that I'm clean and sober today. I'm grateful to you people that I'm clean and sober today. And uh, uh, I want to thank Perry Maris for asking me to speak at the convention. Uh, It's been a wonderful experience for me. I enjoyed everything. I enjoy sponsorship. Uh, uh, me and Jay have a great relationship, and uh, he did a wonderful. Like I said, he did a wonderful job today, and, and uh, we're starting to get things rolling in the Delaware area, and we got a lot of meetings now, and uh, that's wonderful. And uh, I'm going to tell you one story though, and then I'm going to close. And uh, you know, Perry talks about the cell phone, and uh, I'm going to tell you the story of all stories. You know, he'll call you on the ski lift. He'll call you no matter where he's at on his cell phone. I'm in, you know, Kentucky or I'm in, you know, 
I'm over, you know, St. St. John's and the Virgin Islands, anywhere. You know, I'm, you know, or I'm coming down the slope. I got my phone. I don't care what he's doing, but he'll let me know what he's doing. Well, the other day he called me about four o'clock. He said, "Man, I'm in trouble." So what do you mean? What's wrong, Perry? Had me kind of concerned. What's wrong? He said, "I just got a jet ski and I'm out here on a sand dune. I can't get off of it." <laughs> to do? I said, Perry. So I got Diane. Diane, give me the phone book. So Diane, I said, look up the Coast Guard. So we gave Perry the Coast Guard number and he called them and they couldn't get within a half a mile of them because the sandbar was so low they couldn't get near him. He had to wait till about 9 o'clock at night. This happened about 4 o'clock till the, till the tide changed. dollar jet ski and can't get off the sandbar. Over 20 years sobriety. So if he asks you to go, you know, with jet ski in, please don't go. I'll tell you. Uh, and then, you know, there's things today we can laugh at. We can laugh at those things today. And for that, I'm going to shut my mouth. Uh, Perry used about a half hour or all that other stuff. And I was going to speak till the dance, I told my guests. But I don't think I am. I'm going to give you all a break. And Jamie's back there. I don't blame you, Jamie. And uh, since that time, talking about the softball, when Mike won the first softball championship, uh, when Ronnie was the coach, uh, and I was the assistant coach, uh, they won about four or five championships. And uh, so they got some jocks there. And then, uh, of course, Alan got old. And, uh, you know, they, they, they had to, you know, their jock finally got old. When their jock gets old, that's it. So, but I'll tell you what, it, it's good to be here. And uh, uh, I'll tell you what, i tell you, every one of you in here has been a big part of my life. And, uh, uh, Roger's been a big part of my life, and then Brother Alexis, and uh, and just everybody here. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, I don't know what else to say, but I'm going to say one thing. Thank you all. Thank you for saving my life. And I'm going to keep coming back, because you know what? This program works. And I think I know why. Because I think God has something to do with it. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you all. <laughs>